Just hours after we finished taping this podcast, new evidence surfaced of just how wild and crazy things could get in the last days of Donald Trump's presidency. The White House announced that the president had issued a new round of pardons that included Paul Manafort, his former campaign chairman, and Roger Stone, his longtime political advisor, both of whom had been convicted of crimes growing out of Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. And, as if that wasn't enough, Trump also pardoned Charles Kushner, the father of his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who had been convicted of illegal campaign contributions, tax evasion, and witness tampering. Had Cipollone, if he'd taken one more step, I would have bitch-slapped the guy. I would have bitch slapped it. It reached the point I was preparing a bitch slap if he if he did one more inch of aggressiveness. He needed to be bitch slapped. I think Biden is going to break our sovereignty. I think I know what his plan is. It involves the UN and Americans should arm. If Biden comes in, you should arm. And the day that he does anything like invites the UN in you is the day we start revolution. That was Patrick Byrne gadfly American entrepreneur talking on a pro-Trump podcast about how he almost smacked the White House counsel in the Oval Office last week during an hours-long meeting in which he pressed the president to take dramatic measures to reverse the results of last month's election. Burns' views might seem more than a bit outlandish, but his comments about taking up arms once Biden becomes president is no joke. As Americans prepare to celebrate Christmas, law enforcement officials are increasingly worried about the prospects for disruptive protests and even violence in Georgia during the January 5th Senate runoffs and the next day in Washington when Congress is slated to officially accept the Electoral College tally, making Biden the next president. We'll discuss the strange final days of the Trump presidency and what they could bring with Ben Wittes of the Brookings Institution, and then we'll let our indefatigable producer, Mark Seaman, put Clydeman and me on the hot seat with questions from our listeners on this, our end-of-the-year special edition of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crooks. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined for this discussion with the aforementioned Ben Wittes. Ben, welcome back to Skullduggery. Good to be here. So I want to talk a little bit about this guy, Patrick Byrne. I actually became aware of him and got in touch with him about a year and a half ago when it was revealed that he was having a hot, torrid affair with one Maria Butina, the later convicted Russian agent who was sucking up to all sorts of American power figures and um, political leaders in the Republican Party. Party. And that seemed to be quite fascinating. Um, and Burns seemed to have a strange story to tell that would shed light on what Maria Butina was up to. And then he 
resurfaces just in the last couple of weeks as one of those who's been egging Trump on about trying to reverse the results of the election. And, um, you know, there was this now notorious meeting in the Oval Office last Friday. I was texting with Byrne about it. He said it lasted four hours. This is the meeting that Sidney Powell was at, uh, Mike Flynn was at, and uh, it apparently got quite heated. But, you know, the idea as he commented in these uh, in this podcast that people might need to be armed was pretty chilling and gave a taste of just how crazy things can yet get. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. You know, the thing to remember is this really all flows from Donald Trump, right? I mean, you know, if it were not for Trump, you would have nutty conspiracy theories, uh, conspiracy theorists out there and people yelling into the void. But it's all elevated by the fact that they are in the inner sanctum of the president of the United States, who has a huge following. 74 million people voted for him. So it is crazy and it is disturbing. And, you know, you would say you you might think that like the last, the final, the crazed final days of a president um, who is unwilling to give up power would have kind of Shakespearean overtones. But it's just so much more bizarre than that. I mean, Trump has become like some combination of Caligula and Mad King George the <laughs> Third. Uh, right. I mean, you know, I don't know that he's. I don't know. That, I don't know that he's going to appoint his his horse if he has one, the Consul of Washington. <laughs> but it's just absolutely nuts, right? And you know, this is the guy, or one of the very few who has access to the Oval Office right now and who Trump is listening to. And Ben, we've got another clip of Byrne talking about what he thinks might have taken place during the election to steal the valid result for Donald Trump to Joe Biden. I want to play it and get your reaction to it. Mark, do we have that clip? Chinese company in, um, well, I won't tell you the city in China, from a company whose name is already uh, at the periphery of some of this mischief that they were accessing through the through the internet through a hidden port and a thermostat in the room getting on the dominion machine and a it, that was you being used for vote counting in the middle of the vote counting in a swing state ben what do you make of that um well first of all i want to uh meet whoever designed the thermostat. Um, and secondly, I would be careful if I were Mr. Byrne about continuing defamatory uh, statements about Dominion because they're clearly in a uh, litigation posture right now and they're looking for defendants and he's got some money. So I, I think he should probably be pretty careful about statements like that. Well, that doesn't necessarily disprove that the thermostat in China was the portal that was used to. I thought flip the thermostat the was in the swing state through which the Chinese company. Oh, organized. the Chinese company was accessing the, the thermostat in the United States. Yeah, so right. they could control the temperature. It's not right. really clear to me how that overturns an election. <laughs> I thought that usually the way these these conspiracies work is they control things through the fillings in people's teeth. 
I've never heard of a conspiracy you know, of, of a thermostat conspiracy. It's but, called you know. it's called turning up the heat. I have <laughs> to say though that like seriously. The reason I have always not believed in the Internet of Things and, you know, smart homes is the idea that the Russians could hack my thermostat and make me really uncomfortable at home is really unappealing. And so I'm I'm with Mr. Byrne that thermostats are bad news and, <laughs> you know, they can be controlled from afar. Yeah. But I'm not really sure that explains the uh, outcome in the 2020 election. Yeah. But the, the, the serious business here is the talk of violence. Uh, right. And we know that it's you know, it's more than just talk. There has been political violence inspired by a lot of the rhetoric that we've heard from Donald Trump and from people around him. We, the, the Proud Boys will be coming back to Washington on January 6th when the electoral votes are tallied and uh, Joe Biden will be declared the winner of the 2020 election um, by Vice President Pence, or at least we think it'll be Vice President Pence who does that, somewhat awkwardly <laughs> for him, I guess. And, you know, General Flynn in the Oval Office urging the president to invoke martial law Byrne, by the way, insisted to me during our text messaging that that it did not that did not come up at the meeting. Flynn, no question, has talked about invocation of martial law, but he said it did not come up at the meeting. What they were discussing at the meeting was to get Trump to sign a piece of paper. He wasn't quite clear on what this piece of paper would do, but that would somehow give Sidney Powell the authority to investigate the uh, voting machines that they believe were tampered. Presumably, the piece of paper would allow the impounding of those voting machines by the White House. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't think the issue is limited, honestly, to violence, although I agree that in the extreme case is one of the deepest concerns. But I think there's another issue, which is just this is the culmination of a four-year campaign by the President of the United States to get very large numbers of people to distrust the basic functionings of a whole series of American institutions. In this case, the integrity of the electoral machinery of the country. And, you know, that, according to polls, has worked pretty effectively for, you know, somewhere between 40 and 70 million people um, to one degree or another. And that is, you know, by contrast, when President Nixon left office, uh, in, you know, perhaps an even higher level of disgrace. But, uh, uh, you know, he had 25% support at that point. And so this is a relatively successful effort to undermine the integrity and confidence that people have in all the systems that are supposed to work. Yeah. One consequence of that is violence, but there are other consequences Absolutely. of it too. You know, and, and just before we started recording this podcast, uh, Isakoff pointed out that Newt Gingrich had just penned an op-ed piece under the headline, something like, you know, why I won't accept Joe Biden as president of the United States. I don't know what he what his argument is, but this is a, a threat that will persist because of 
you know, as we've talked a lot about on this podcast, because of the continuing sway that that Trump has over the Republican Party and the fact that, you know, he does have a huge base of support and he has acolytes like Newt Gingrich who are willing and eager to carry carry that message. But wait a second. And yet and yet we had William Barr, the well, attorney but, general Mike, of I, the I, United I, we, States. I want to go to Barr, but I wanted to make one other point okay. as a kind of segue to Barr, which is that there is there is some silver lining here, which is that our institutions, as strained as they have been over the last four years, some of them have proved rather resilient and more resilient than a lot of people had feared, particularly the courts. And, you know, we you know, a lot of people have noted that many of the Republican judges, federal judges and including judges who were appointed by Donald Trump himself just tossed all of those lawsuits challenging the election results out uh, unceremoniously. But more than just the courts, I mean, you know, we, we were a lot of people were moved by the state, local, state and local election officials who in many ways were the sort of unsung heroes of our democracy and were the real resistance. I mean, secretaries, secretaries of state and clerks and auditors and members of these boards of canvassers, and they were nonpartisan, they were transparent, they stuck to the rules set forth by state legislatures and, and the Constitution. And even, and this is where I think I, I want we should talk about Barr, even Donald Trump's own government and political appointees seem to have had their limits, seem to have had their breaking points. The Barr example is complicated, and I really want to hear Ben's view. Yeah, but let's just tell people what Barr did this week, which was right. he holds a press conference. It's really to announce uh, you know new charges in the in, in the Pan Am bombing in 1988 by Libyan intelligence, which was a very big deal and got very little attention this week. But in the course of that, he said no. Uh, he still has seen no evidence of election fraud that would change the outcome of the election. No, he's not going to appoint a special counsel. No, there's no authority to impound the voting machine. The thing Patrick Byrne is trying to get Trump to do. Uh, no, he's not going to appoint a special counsel uh, for Hunter Biden, as some Republicans in the House have been doing. And now, Ben, you've obviously been extremely critical of William Barr as being a toady for Trump all this time. But here he was standing his ground and doing the exact opposite of what the president wanted him to do and say. Yeah. So first of all, uh, you know, like you guys, I got a Bill Barr very different from the one I expected. And the one I and I I was actually quite cheered when Barr was was nominated and wrote some nice things about him, which uh, and this I regret, but well, I do I do regret them, and I and I think there's you know I think there's a lot of he's done a lot of things that I don't forgive. That said, the person I was expecting is very much the person we've seen over the last sort of 30 days. That is a kind of grumpy, conservative, hardliner who doesn't take guff from anybody, including President Trump. And I think, you know, I, 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 I sort of my reaction to the last 30 days of Bill Barr is where have you been all my life? You know, this is who I thought was, who I thought we were getting. That said, I do want to ameliorate my my discount my my praise of his later actions on a couple of things. So, uh, first of all, some of the things that people were asking of him here were stark raving mad, and you know the unwillingness to impound voting machines 
state voting machines in the absence of any indication that there was a problem with them is not a great democratic virtue. It merely suggests that he does not suffer from whatever clinical illness <laughs> Sidney Powell does, right? Yeah, um, but it was like a stark, raving, mad request from the president of that, the United that, States. So that's, that's right. not I, nothing. I just want right. like I, I just want to say it indicates that Bill Barr has a limit. And I respect that. I'm glad we found the thing that even Bill Barr wouldn't do. I think the more interesting thing and the one that actually took more courage is the Hunter Biden decision. Because there, I actually think there's a plausible argument, not that it should be handled by a special counsel now, but that it's it's a kind of textbook situation that the special counsel regs were written for 30 days from now. And so you, you could make an argument as Bill Barr, just like he did, I think, in a hard to defend fashion about John Durham, hey, let's do it now to tie the next administration's hands. And I think that would be arguably more defensible with respect to Hunter Biden than it was with respect to John Durham. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. But I just want to say, I mean, you know, what he really did or did not do during the run up to the election was allow any leaking of the fact that Hunter Biden was under criminal investigation by his Justice Department, which had that come out, it would have been a huge, there would have been a huge uproar. So I agree with that. I agree that he did that. And I think he deserves credit for that. He also faced with the reactivation of the investigation post-election, did not take the extra step that, as I say, I think would have been more defensible in the, than it was in the Durham case of saying, let's, let's appoint a special counsel so that the next administration can't shut it down. And I think a very interesting question is why. Here's what I think about Barr. I think the decision not to name a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case is entirely consistent with Barr's long, strongly held view that independent counsels, special counsels, regulatory special counsels, whatever you call them, are not necessary, are a problem, that these cases can be responsibly handled by the Justice Department. I, I think he appointed one independent counsel when he was attorney general the first time, and that was in the uh, Joe DiGiorgio, right, in the, in, yeah. in the passport case. And I remember at the Jim, time, by he stories desperately... that I did with Walter Pincus. Yes. He's on Isikoff stories with Walter Pincus. <laughs> My recollection is he desperately didn't want to do it, but he felt his, his hands were tied by the statute. He had to do it, but he never wanted to have to do it again. So to me, the outlier here, it's not you know, not appointing a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case. It was renewing the Durham investigation and making Durham a regulatory special counsel. That's the one that I don't understand and I think is, except the point that you alluded to before, is that he does have this mischievous political side and that he knew he would be ha uh, tying the hands of the of the incoming. And what's your problem with what he did on the Durham investigation? I mean, it seems to me that, you know, there would be a legitimate public interest in knowing what it is John Durham has found, what it is he's been pursuing 
pursuing and what he finally comes up with. Why couldn't you do that with... because of concern that that the Biden Justice Department would shut him down. They can still do that. They can still do that. Well, it makes it politically more difficult. My concern with the Durham investigation is basically everything about the way Bill Barr has handled it from the beginning. So first of all, he appoints John Durham for a non-prosecutorial purpose. It's basically, I don't really trust the IG. Do some journalism for me which is a highly unusual thing for the attorney general to do. He gives him jurisdiction as an initial matter over the CIA, among other things. Please go, go review the, the way the intelligence community assessment was put together and whether it's right. And, let's, and please uh, go you know, traipse all over the world trying to figure out whether my belief, the origins of which we really have no idea where they came from, that actually the Russia investigation didn't begin with George Papadopoulos is right. Well, it turns out he recently admitted to Kimberly Strassel, you know, that was a, you want to talk about a witch hunt, that was a real witch hunt. The thing becomes criminal because Kevin Kleinsmith, this one FBI lawyer, fudged a document. Well, do- doctored a document. Let's yeah, not yeah, paper yeah. over. No, He's no, no, criminally convicted. Enough. He's likely to go to prison. I it was no, a genuine I have no problem with the prosecution. Misconduct. Didn't mean to diminish it. No okay. problem with the contra- uh, uh, with the prosecution of Kevin Kleinsmith. That activity was found by the IG, not by John Durham. So you're not talking about any information that's uncovered here by the John Durham investigation. This is a referral from the Department of Justice Inspector General. Nothing wrong with that. That happens Nothing all the time. Nothing wrong with it. But here's my question. What is the investigation of? You have the original journalism stuff that he was supposed to do. Go tell me, noodle around about all my conspiracy theories. You've got... Uh, the intelligence community assessment stuff that hasn't, he now admits, has not amounted to anything. You've got a single criminal act by a single lawyer that's been prosecuted. So far. Uh, so far. And you have no otherwise known subject of a criminal investigation. So this is, to me, the first time I've ever seen a special counsel investigation or an independent counsel investigation back under the statute in which I can't even tell you yeah. what the theory of the criminal, what the underlying criminal theory is. Yeah, we, we've talked to lawyers representing people in this investigation, and they've all been told they are witnesses. They are not. No. Yeah. As well, far as I John know, John Brennan was interviewed for five hours as a as a witness, not as a but not as a he's not a target. He's not a target. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. First of all, there's little room for nuance in the political discussion or, or journalistic discussion about these issues. It's either one thing or the other. It's either, you know, Russia was, you know, the biggest, uh, Trump was totally co-opted by the Russians and used by the Russians, or it was all a hoax. More than one thing can be true. Number one, Russia did really attack us during the 2016 election. You know, number two, Trump did everything he could to dismiss it and play it down and as a result made things worse. All that's true. His conduct was shameful and indefensible. At the same time, 
There were real abuses by your friends at the FBI, Ben. And, you know, they presided over a clearly improper FISA process, which is Isn't that what that the Inspector General investigation condemn. was about? Yeah, but, so but, you're, but you're there not gonna, are major you're not questions. Gonna, you're not gonna, I have not said a word in defense of the, the way the Carter Page FISA is handled. You're not going to get yeah. me to say one now. As I say, I have no problem with the prosecution of Kevin Kleinsmith. I don't know what is under investigation. I, I don't. I to this day, as a journalist, and maybe this is a journalistic issue, and it's not a criminal issue. But I'll just make two first, just to, to to sort of try to understand why this has such resonance with Republicans. Imagine if a Republican opposition research document ended up being used by the FBI in the FISA process to target a member of a Democratic presidential campaign. You don't think that would be viewed as a huge scandal and that there would be congressional hearings about it presided over by Democrats to get to the bottom of how the FBI had been corrupted by using a opposition research document, political. uh, But number two, add on top of that, once you know that by February of 2017, they Bureau had interviewed the subsource who basically walked away from the very material that the FBI was using to present to the FISA court, and the FBI continued to use it. And Comey and Andrew McCabe say they didn't even know about this. They didn't even know that on the most single, most sensitive investigation the FBI had going into an incumbent president, they had learned information that contradicted and undermined material they were presenting to a federal court, I don't, I still have not seen or heard a good explanation for that. How is it that such material information was kept secret even within the FBI if it really was? Or are people lying about what they've, about the public accounts they've given? Okay, so you have just made an excellent argument for the Inspector General report from a year ago. Which hasn't got, which didn't get to the bottom of the very question I just posed. Well, but but you've made an excellent argument for political criticism of Jim Comey and Andrew McCabe, and you you don't see me here saying there shouldn't have been congressional hearings on the subject, and Lindsey Graham is wrong to slam his fist on the table. You're arguing against a point I'm not making. I'm making a single point. We have right now a special counsel investigation devoted to investigating crimes. And I am unaware of an allegation, even a, a, leave alone a plausible allegation, I'm unaware of an allegation of a crime beyond that Kevin Kleinsmith faked this one document who has been prosecuted for. So when I say I have a problem with what Bill Barr did in the Durham case, I have a problem with having an investigation that I don't know what it's of. Um, Now, Well, the conduct of the FBI is what he said, uh, but all that is more reason is I want to know what he's got. And if it turns out he's got nothing and that there's really no targets here and there's no criminal wrongdoing, you know, John Durham, who is a, you know, nonpartisan, longstanding U.S. attorney served under Republicans and Democrats, no political bias that we know of, he's going to have a lot to answer for. Uh, so, look, my view is, I, you know, I would not argue that he should, I've never argued he should not be able to finish up whatever it is he's doing. 
I do think you have a very peculiar situation here in which Bill Barr has publicly announced an investigation and shepherded an investigation and publicly commented darkly about what it's going to find and what it's going to show, all that doesn't have an obvious criminal predicate at all. And I, so I'm suspicious of it. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't understand what it's about. And I agree with you that Durham gets, he, he, he gets to finish it. He gets to you know, unless there's something really outrageous, we get to find out what he's got, what he, what what the whole thing is. But you're asking me what I have a what I have a problem with in Bill Barr. I don't think his handling of this is uh, admirable. And as as to the the point about Durham having a lot to answer for at the end of this, I mean, look, we know he's a extremely methodical, extremely careful prosecutor. He took five years or whatever it was on the torture investigation. And I don't really think he'll have a lot to answer for. I think it actually comes back to Barr, but also to these special counsel investigations. And it raises yeah. a lot of the questions that Bill Barr himself was critical of. He's, you, know, you appoint one prosecutor for one case, they have every incentive to go on forever. And he doesn't want to, uh, at the end of the day, close down his investigation only to then find out that there was, that there was something. But how appropriate that on our final episode of Skullduggery <laughs> this year, we have gone down a Russiagate rabbit hole. <laughs> I think it's been with Dennis, I think it's time to pull ourselves. <laughs> who else should we? Who else would go down this rabbit hole with us? Actually, I don't think there's anybody else. I think we need else. to pull ourselves out of the rabbit hole and all bring right. in um, Mark. Right. Or... Now here's I got a question for Ben here. All of which sort of you know begs the question: This is going to be in the hands of the Biden Attorney General and the Biden Justice Department. Where's the AG pick? How is it that almost everybody else in the cabinet has been picked and we still do not have an AG? I have no idea what the answer to that question is, save that there's got to be a story there. Yes. It, like, <laughs> like this is this is a story yeah. where like you would not want the AG picked right at the end. It's normally done, you know, it's a it's a deeply symbolic appointment, among other things, whether it's because you're you know, you're trotting out a very distinguished, you know, Griffin Bell type or because you're doing something controversial, right? It's, you know, the John Ashcroft model. It's a, it's a you know, it's a moment when you name an AG. I don't think you normally try to save it up for the end. I don't know what the story behind so this is. So I actually is, do but... have a theory about this, but I want to save it for the last segment of this episode, which is going to be predictions. All right. Uh, All right. So I'm going to make it. I'm going to let's wait. Well, I'll, I'll let you do that, but I'll just give my sort of just top of the you know line thoughts here, which is that it's proven very difficult that they're having. I, I don't know this. I'm just surmising from everything that has been publicly reported that there's got to be some pretty intense clashes about who it should be. I think a, a lot of people in Biden's world wanted it to be Sally Yates. 
She had the chops. She had served as deputy attorney general in the Obama years. But it became clear or has become clear that that's going to be a political minefield, that the Republicans are going to give her a hard time because of her critical early role in the Russia investigation. So that's left them with um, Doug Jones, the uh, now soon to be ex-senator from Alabama who lost re-election. That's the John Ashcroft model of appointment. At least the guy that Jones lost to is alive. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Merrick Garland, who I assume has given a nod that he'd consider it, given that his name continues to be mentioned as a possible. I think, and I've said this before, that the Hunter Biden thing makes the case stronger for Merrick Garland because he would seem to have the most credibility as you know somebody who would not have a political axe to grind. Yeah, yeah, and who's had no political involvement since 1996 right. or 1997. I will point out that I believe the public record will back me up on this. The first person to name Merrick Garland as somebody that Joe Biden uh, should name as attorney general was me, which yeah. was before the election. Yeah. And, and I should add, there's no limits on self-promotion on Skullduggery. No, no, yeah. Yeah. even if there were, I would exceed. <laughs> we do it all the time. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, uh, given yeah. this discussion, I am actually going to, I'm going to put out my prediction now. I have okay. another, I've got another prediction, but it all goes, right. it, goes Go to, it. To, it goes to this issue, which is, I think they may be waiting for the results of the Georgia runoff elections for the possible, <laughs> possibility that if they win take back control of the Senate. Two reasons. If it's Sally Yates, look, Sally Yates is the institutionalist. She's the traditional attorney general who would, you know, the Justice Department would run the way the Justice Department generally has. It would go back to basic norms. You know, she does have this Russia issue, which, you know, would make her maybe radioactive with some Republicans. But if the Democrats win back control of the Senate, she gets through. Secondly, one of the concerns about Merrick Garland is that by pulling him off the D.C. circuit, McConnell then blocks that seat and they lose a key Democratic appointee on the D.C. circuit, which is obviously would be a big deal. If they win back the Senate, he can't do that. So I, I think they're to, waiting. As I used to say to you many years ago, it's a great legal time story. Uh, <laughs> well, there are a lot of a lot of legal time stories happen to be accurate, yeah. and uh, Ben uh, knows this as well as anybody, and predictive of the future. Okay, including I want to add a lo- a profile that Dan Clydman did for of Merrick Garland for Legal <laughs> Times many years ago, back when he was at the Justice Department working the Oklahoma City case. And uh, Dan got ribbed about this uh, profile (laughs) endlessly for being too friendly to its uh, subject. And it basically got the whole thing right. Yeah. Well, um, uh, hopefully uh, Garland will get the nod and we'll have an in at the Justice Department through Clydman's uh, 25-year-old profile. Let's get to the questions, which is uh, what we've advertised this as being for in our end-of-the-year special. And we're going to bring in, you've heard references, Skullduggery listeners, to our uh, producer, Mark Seaman. Mark... The actual brains behind the podcast. Yes. Welcome to actually being on Skullduggery. (laughs) Yes, thanks. And and I know we're talking about self-promotion here. So, you know, I will self-promote myself as the AG of the Skullduggery podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sensor is another word for it, yes. But I'm not excited about this new task. Now I have to dig up a 25-year-old uh, piece that Dan wrote, and then I'm going to have to edit that too. All right, so... We have some Q&A here. We've got some questions. We we asked our audience. Which our came listeners. in uh, via Twitter from our listeners. Yes, via Twitter. And uh, there's a couple good ones here. And we'll, we'll sort our way through these. And Ben, we've got one here for you as well. As we advertised, you were going to be a special guest on the pod. And then I've got a couple. I've got a few questions for these guys. And uh, one is, why is Mike's phone always on? That's uh, <laughs> That's my first question. All right. Okay. It's off. Okay, okay. So the first question here says, how do certain media outlets have copies of things like Hunter Biden's text messages? Are those purported to have come from his laptop? And how does this happen? And this is a good question because we here on Skullduggery obtained some audio from former President Obama that we ended up turning into a story and disclosing you know, to the public. Uh, so what do we do when we get stuff like this? How do we get it? And when is it right to use it and to not use it? Okay, well, so for a couple of things, it was a big difference when we got what we got from Obama was a valid audio tape that we were able to authenticate of him talking to former staffers in which he was speaking out about uh, what he thought about uh, the way Trump was running the White House. With the Hunter Biden thing, you know, this is a very tricky question because I think it's going to have legs into the next administration with now that we know Hunter Biden really is under criminal investigation. Look, those text messages emerged from the New York Post in a leak that came from Rudy Giuliani. People asked to see the laptop in which uh, all these messages were contained. Rudy did not give it to unfriendly, what he viewed as unfriendly media. So many of us were not able to authenticate or see the full context of what uh, Rudy Giuliani had. That said, I and I said this on the pod at the time, uh, I thought there was enough smoke there that we all should have been more aggressive in our reporting to figure out what was going on with the Hunter Biden laptop, because it was clear that the New York Post, or it seemed to be clear that they had a valid FBI subpoena for that laptop, that there was uh, the name of a, a U.S. attorney in the U.S. attorney's office in Delaware who was overseeing an investigation that turned out to be true. And yet much of the media and much of the, uh, you know, uh, commentariat on the cable shows, CNN and MSNBC, dismissed this all as Russian disinformation. It shouldn't be accepted. We shouldn't even talk about it. And they were wrong. Ben, any thoughts on this? So this is not a story that I have followed intimately, but I basically agree with you. I think the I think there there was a lot of reason to be dubious about the source of it, about the story behind it, which was absurd, and about uh, the possibility of foreign disinformation operations playing or information operations playing some kind of role in it. And that said, uh, I haven't seen a lot of reason to think the specific emails are, or text messages are not authentic, and therefore there is you know, some kind of story in there, although exactly what it says I mean, is, is less than clear to me. Next question here, Dan, this is, uh, this is for you. I think you can take this one. What are the procedures for ending the use of the Electoral College? This is something that's been bubbling up, especially when a, when a president is elected, 
with less popular votes. That seems to be when this comes to to mind. But uh, right now, you know, the Electoral College is being challenged very heavily by Trump. And he, too, lost the popular vote here this for the second term. So by seven million votes. Yeah, by seven million votes. I mean, it's it's quite an exorbitant amount. And I think, amount. what is it, five times in our history, a president who did not win the popular vote was elected president and two times now since 2000. Uh, look, this is an issue that for all the right reasons has become, you know, of great interest, almost obsessive interest to millions and millions of Americans. And, you know, I, I realized this when my daughters, you know, my teenage daughters a couple of years ago started grilling me about the Electoral College and, Dad, it doesn't make any sense. It's stupid, Dad. And I sort of like hazily remembered, well, you know, you know, there are reasons for this. The founding fathers knew what they were doing. And, you know, it had to do with balancing power between uh, uh, small, smaller states that have less representation and and the bigger states so they can't dominate elections. Turns out none of that is true. And it really was just kind of a kind of a fuck up on the on behalf of the founding fathers that, that kind of got rushed into uh, our system. And the other thing is, I, you know, sort of fatalistically thought, well, you'd need a constitutional amendment. There's no way to actually be able to change the system. Well, it turns out that's not really true anyway. Uh, let's just back up for a second. It is a, the Electoral College is undemocratic and it is unrepresentative. Americans don't vote directly for president. They vote for electors, as most people know by now, who cast votes supposedly on their, their behalf. In 48, I think it's in 48 of 50 uh, states have this winner-take-all system, which basically means that, you know, millions and millions of Americans in states that aren't closely divided, which is to say not the battleground states or most American states, are essentially disenfranchised every four years. 80% of Americans, their votes really don't count. It's like 100 million people. Their votes just don't count. And as a result, it's a totally like distorted system where, you know, when we have these presidential elections, and by the way, this only applies to presidential elections, no other election. I mean, all the other elections are essentially uh, direct representation. But, you know, presidential candidates don't travel to most states. They don't bring up the issues or debate the issues. So can uh, I can I just break in? So you know, yeah. right now, what? There's what, about seven states, eight states that are theoretically in play in any presidential election, you know, maybe one or two more, depending on, you know, what the election is. But look, if we did away with the Electoral College, why would I have Anybody have any reason to go to any state other than New York and California? I mean, you know, flyover country would literally become flyover country. Why waste your time going to Iowa? You or wouldn't have to get a, get state. rid of the electoral college. What you yeah. would, and there's already there's already a movement in this in this country. This this uh, interstate compact where basically what would happen, and I think 15 states have joined, including the District of Columbia, is that in those states already today, uh, right, yeah, 15 states plus the D.C. have, have joined onto it, it means that the, the popular vote, the national popular vote winner, the states deciding to award their electors would award their electors to uh, whichever candidate wins the national popular vote. So you wouldn't have a situation where, as you do right now, where, you know, in any state in the country, you could a candidate could win the vote by one vote and every other vote, all the you know, 49.99 percent of other votes gets essentially thrown out. 
So all you would need is, uh, and, and I think if you add those states up, that you get to you know 200, 196 uh, electoral votes, something like that. You you add um, the rest of this. You, all you would need is seventy four more electoral votes, so a few more states, and you're there. And so, and you don't need a constitutional amendment for that. I mean, this is something that state legislatures do, can do on their own. Although there's um, a big flaw in the National Popular Vote Compact that I actually think would, would if, if, it, if it ever got closer to 270, it would require an amendment in order to fix. Here's the flaw. So if you have 270 electoral votes that are pledged 271 electoral votes, say, that are pledged to the popular vote winner by state law, and then you have a, redist a, a, a reapportionment, like, for example, the one we're going to go through right now, and some of those states lose electoral votes, right? Like Michigan, New York will lose electoral votes to Texas. All of a sudden, you have a whole bunch of states that are pledged to the electoral, uh, the popular vote winner but not enough to win. And so I think they're actually, if, if they ever get closer, they're gonna have to build in a, you know, a threshold, like you need 280 electoral votes in order to trigger the electoral vote, the National Popular Vote Compact. I don't think it's, I think it's a really interesting idea and I think it's doable, but it's imperfectly executed so far, I think. Mark, next question. Yeah, Ben, this one's for you here. Uh, what are some institutional reforms enabling us to codify norms ignored by the Trump administration? I'm sorry, I, I have trouble parsing that question. Some reforms to codify norms? Yes. Yeah, sorry with all the, the rhyming. To codify <laughs> norms that have been ignored I by see. the right. Trump yes. sorry. administration. Um, look, some of, there are some easy ones that are low-hanging fruit, and I think fairly common ground once Trump is at all, out of office. I don't think there's going to be a big constituency in Congress for against the required disclosure of presidential tax returns, for example. Maybe there will, but that one's pretty easy. I think it's fairly easy to imagine codifying what had been the pre-Trump understanding of the emoluments clause, right? You know, the president shouldn't have a side business dealing, you know, selling falafel, uh, <laughs> you know, a stand out on Lafayette Square. Um, Why not? <laughs> well, you know, because because all the people who want something from the president will come by his, from his falafel yeah, stand, right. not from the poor guy next to him. His would be awful falafel, right? <laughs> well, I think it really depends on how good the falafel is. Although it would is, be, but... he does serve the best taco bowls. You'll remember, yeah. <laughs> he tells you that. So, like, there's some low-hanging fruit that's just, it's pretty easy to do. I'm not sure I see what the great constituency against it looks like once Trump is no longer on the scene. There is some stuff that you can talk about it all day, but it's impossible to do. For example, preventing the president from firing certain people. At the end of the day, you can build in alleged protections for the FBI director, right? Say he gets to serve a 10-year term, but for constitutional reasons, you kind of can't prevent the president from firing him. And the president sort of respects that rule kind of at his discretion. And there's a huge amount that falls into that. You, If you want virtuous 
behavior, don't elect wholly unvirtuous people. And then there's a space in the middle that is, you know, really like you can, with a lot of creative policy, you can make incremental differences and do some work. Uh, so Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, whom I believe you guys had on the podcast, you know, did a whole book of this stuff. And, you know, cumulatively, that stuff, if you could enact it all, would make a huge difference. But I think both Jack and Bob would acknowledge that, you know, Donald Trump would find the space between the rules under their system, too. There would just be less of it. Um, and so that their set of proposals cover a huge range of ground from the obstruction of justice statutes to, um, you know, various financial disclosure issues. And so I, I, I think there's a lot of work to do. I just yeah. wouldn't overstate how much you can do by codifying norms. Yeah, so, so here's the question that I think this raises and the kind of conundrum. You know, there are laws and there are norms and they are not the same thing, right? Correct. You know, norms uh, are, you know, are a series uh, built up over tradition. They're standards that our body politic accepts, the people accept, and they, they gain a certain strength just by that kind of almost contract that we establish by experience and tradition, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the question is, after four years of Donald Trump, where those norms have been busted through, how do we reestablish them? Can we reestablish them? What does it take to reestablish them? There are a lot of people who said that, you know, Joe Biden, who is, you know, the classic institutionalist who has been in government for something like a, a third of the entire history of the republic. I exaggerate a little bit, but he's been around for a long time. And so he's kind of a personification of a lot of these kinds of tradition, respect for these kinds of traditions. But that is not going to be enough. So what kinds of things can be done to reestablish old norms, to build new norms uh, that are responsive to the way things have changed in our society? I mean, what do we do about that? That seems like the bigger challenge. So I agree that that is, I don't know if it's the bigger challenge, but it's a big, big challenge. And look, some of it is about shaping norms that Trump disrupted. So Trump was not the first president to tweet himself. The first president to tweet himself that I know of was uh, Estonian president Tomas Ilves, who manned his own Twitter feed and used it to talk about cybersecurity and Russia and to tweet academic articles that he thought people should be aware of. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. You know, if you tweeted at him, the president of Estonia would tweet back at you. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that here is a president of a country who's actually responding. Granted, it's a country the size a little bit bigger than the District of Columbia, but um, it's a real country on the front line of, of you know, Russia. And he's actually responsive enough to do that stuff himself. So for example, I don't think it is necessarily a terrible thing that a president would tweet. Trump has tweeted in a way that is appalling. Joe Biden will not do that. But I doubt he will be quite as restrained about Twitter. He already isn't as his predecessor. He he gets a little he gets edgier than Obama gets 
got or then, you know, I don't even think George W. Bush was on Twitter at all. And so some of this is Trump showed what happens if you take a baseball bat to a whole lot of things that we all assumed you couldn't touch. And though that's and he's and that, not done yet. That's right. The most important and it, thing. And that's right. horrible. But it does raise the question of what are you allowed to do with those things that wouldn't be horrible? And it may force Biden and future presidents to think, OK, we're not doing that. Yeah. But well, in what this is a little bit of what a, you're right. Right. What you're describing is a normal evolution that is responsing to responsive to evolving shifts in attitudes and mores. And that's the way things have always changed until Donald Trump. So, yeah. yeah. All right, Mark, you got a couple quick more? Yeah, we got a couple quick ones here. But uh, before we get to those, I encourage anybody to visit the Trump Twitter library if it happens to come to your town. It is quite the festive organized project. It's Comedy, that, uh, uh, Comedy Central, yeah, right? Yeah, the Daily yeah. Show put together. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. Okay, uh, yeah, we can we can get through these last uh, couple here pretty quickly. This one's for everybody, I guess. If Donald Trump allowed you to ask absolutely any question you wanted, on or off the record, what would you ask President well, Trump. first of all, that presumes you'd get a truthful answer. Well, we get do we get truth serum with it? Let's <laughs> yeah, say we get we truth had, serum with it. If we had truth serum, I would ask him about his conversations with uh, Vladimir Putin in Hamburg and Helsinki. Ben, you have one? I got one if you don't. I would ask him for his for a candid reflection on his own state of mind. He <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I it would not be a factual question. I just like he has seemed so miserably unhappy his entire presidency and he doesn't seem like I actually just kind of want to know how he's doing like <laughs> the, the honest answer how touching like, are, are you how okay? touching yeah all right I, I'm I'm going to go full tabloid here yeah. uh I just want to know everything about how he assembles his hair in the morning <laughs> So we, we need right. a video answer for that one, right? Yeah. We need a video answer. Okay, uh, if you were forced to quarantine with two members of the Trump White House, who would you choose? Huh. Oh, that's unfair. And, <laughs> that is, that and is, more importantly, why? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that is uh, a deeply unfair question, um, which presumes that there's anybody we would want to quarantine with in the Trump White House. But look, I, from a journalistic uh, standpoint, John Kelly, who was the chief of staff, who clearly had was witness to lots of crazy things that he's hinted at to others, but not spoken publicly about. So I think he would be um, at the top. And given how we started this show with Pat, you get with, one, you get one. No, you, you get, said oh, is two. It two? No, All right. Question it is two. two. Yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And given how we started this show with um, with Patrick Byrne saying he wanted to bitch slap Pat Cipollone, uh, who was the White House counsel and steered Trump through impeachment, but clearly drew a line somewhere about where William Barr presumably drew a line uh, so that he was getting into screaming matches uh, with the uh, diehard crazies last Friday, uh, I would probably include him on it. 
Well, I was going to say John Kelly, so you stole my John Kelly. I stole your John Kelly. Uh, but I, I would, but I do also agree with you. I think, and it's appropriate for this this show. I think the the White House lawyers are will be the most interesting. You so, stole mine. Yeah. So I, I was going. I would say Don McGahn. We do know a fair amount of uh, you know what he was thinking during the whole Mueller investigation because he spent many many hours before the. Uh, Mueller grand jury, and I think we got a lot of those transcripts. I, I personally don't think McGahn has anything to say beyond what he told Robert Mueller and the whole idea that Democrats spent all that time trying to get him as a witness as though they were going to get anything other than what he had already testified to before Mueller just struck me as unrealistic. I'm going to throw in a couple of my questions here, if that's OK, guys. I love that I'm off the hook on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to chime in if you want. But uh, I, I would take Scaramucci just for entertainment value. <laughs> right. Good point. Fair enough. I think he's available if you want to call yeah, him. Yeah, you can rent him on, 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 on one of those rent-a-Scaramucci sites. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, Mike, Dan, of all the performances from you two during all the episodes we taped this year, which... Uh, which performance would you pardon each other from? Uh, was there one that uh, maybe you felt Ooh, the other could, could have stepped pardon. up a little bit and maybe could have done a little bit better and been more challenging? Oh, wow. You're trying to get us to become self-critical. Yeah, a little bit. I know. Well, I, I bring this up because sometimes when we have a... Yeah, when we have a particular guest on, we might catch a little flack one way or the other. Maybe we're not pressing them hard enough. Oh, we it get was, flack all the time. One one in particular, Steve Scalise. We went to his office. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you guys kind of yeah, just took, uh, uh, well, took a back that, seat. I don't think that was this year. But yes, that was an example of where we got access to somebody we normally would not get access to. And he wouldn't shut up. He kept talking. And uh, we didn't do enough to interrupt him and contradict the some of the false things or false claims he was making. And yeah. I'll cop to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that one. And, you know, and I, I, there are other examples like that where I think, you know, we did push back, but uh, but we just the person that we interviewed was just so good at sticking to their talking points. The, the, the trick in 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 good interviews, particularly if they are recorded interviews or, or interviews on television, um, which is, you know, there's always an element of theater to that as, a, you know, not just getting information is getting the person you're interviewing out of their comfort zone. You want to see them shifting in their seats a little bit because the question is just so uncomfortable making for them. And in that interview, I would say maybe Matt Schlapp is another example of that, where yeah. we probably... Uh, you know, uh, or, I think or the, even a couple of weeks ago with uh, uh, Nicole Maliotakis, where I thought we let her get away with a little too much with uh, not accepting the results of the election. She just wanted to see the process run through. You know, she was kind of, you know, appealing. She had just won a new member of Congress. You know, I think we were trying to sort of, you know, be nice to our fresh face. But, you know, when I listened to it, I was like, hmm. We should have pushed back on. All right. So this is going to be our New Year's resolution for yeah. 2021. Don't let anybody get away with bullshit. Yeah. Okay, OK. So this one, Mike, this one's a little bit more directed towards you. You know, it's tricky when you're doing interviews. Like like you said, uh, Dan, you want to get comfortable with them and then all of a sudden hit them with the uncomfortableness. Right. So that they're now on the spot and they're willing to even play along. But uh, it felt like uh, almost out of nowhere while we were interviewing Rachel Maddow, Mike, you just mm -hmm. turned the tables 
And a lot of people, a lot of listeners are saying, hey, why did you attack Rachel? What happened there? And it begs the question, how hard is it for you guys to maintain a distance from your own personal beliefs? Yeah, well, that, that, that was a... Yeah, that was a tough one because uh, I've I've known her for years. She's always been very good to me. She's had me on her show. You know, she's promoted my books. Uh, you know, nothing I used to get in this year get a uh, a bottle of liquor that she sends to all her many guests. And then in the middle of the interview, I did feel because I've been listening to her show a lot, that she'd like gone a little overboard on the Russia stuff. And she was getting overly conspiratorial. And she had done a lot to promote the Steele dossier, which at that point, for reasons I mentioned earlier, had been exposed as having all sorts of weaknesses. And that the folks, particularly at MSNBC and led by Rachel, were just not accepting. And that struck me as, you know, journalistically wrong. I wasn't prepared to get into a big fight with her about it. I wanted to raise it. I was a little taken aback by how sharply she recoiled and pushed back at any suggestion that she had said something that might not have turned out to be true. So I was not fully armed as I normally would be with examples because I wasn't planning on doing that with her. So it was a pretty awkward moment. I still have enormous respect for her. I think she's great. But yes, I think when many people look back on this era, they will see journalistic excesses on all sides, certainly on Fox News, but also on CNN and also on MSNBC, where they there was no room for nuance. They bought in totally to the Russia story because it was great for ratings. It was great for book publishing, too. You know, uh, Russian Roulette did very well. But at some point, you got to call it squarely and fairly. And I don't think the cable shows were doing that. All right, Mike, you walked right into my booby trap there. Two quick, silly questions for you guys. One, we, we put out over 135 pods this year. And of those 135 podcasts, how many times was Isakov's book, Russian Roulette, brought up which <laughs> not as much this year as it I was, was last, last year last year <laughs> last year it was a drinking game right <laughs> well i have to add one more to the tally you just said it uh, yeah. so yeah. what well, do we you think just brought it up so don't give me a hard time all right hey let's ask Bay ben you got any questions for us questions for you yeah whose idea was this podcast how did you like what what's the origin story of the podcast okay, okay, I, I will I, I will tell you that story so when did we start this thing? In 2018, Mike? Like I, think was, I think it was January 2018. January of 2018. Yeah, 2018. Yeah. yeah. So um, there were a, a lot of changes in my company. Yahoo was acquired by Verizon. We uh, created a company that is now called Verizon Media. People were shifting around. Um, and at a certain point, one of my bosses, Alex Wallace, who had a long, illustrious career at NBC News, said she wanted more video programming for a new the new Yahoo News app that we were developing. And so I was tasked with helping coming up with some political programming for this app. It was going to be mostly video that would appear in the app. And I thought to myself, well, what can we do that's different? We're not going to do a Sunday show like Meet the Press. You know, everything sort of has been done. But podcasts were hot. And I thought, well, nobody's really done a video podcast, essentially a video show that had all of the kind of values of a podcast. Smart, 
but more informal, personality-driven, and just, you know, kind of podcasty. So that was the initial idea, and uh, and I thought, well, maybe this is something that Isakoff and I could do, given that we have worked together for close to 25 years now, and uh, it was the beginning of, uh, you know, we were well into the Trump era, I guess, but clearly it, this was a, a subject matter um, that would lend itself to a lot of great debate and interviews. And we also wanted to uh, do something that would make news. And so we would uh, have, you know, kind of newsmakers uh, on the podcast and just kind of mix it up. There's a shorter um, way to say this, which is we thought podcasts were cool and we thought yeah, we'd be cool but, if we but did here's, a podcast. But here's what happened. We, we did our very first skullduggery, January 2018, right? And our first guest was Eric Holder because it was the 20th anniversary of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And we all had history together in that scandal. And we did it on video. And um, it was it was a great interview with Holder. And it was a great show as a podcast that you listen to. But as a video podcast, it was kind of a disaster. We were sitting there on stools. We, were, we had like, uh, we were reading teleprompters. It was stiff. Mike was going into like his NBC anchor voice. You know? <laughs> and so um, literally after that first show, our producer said at the time, it wasn't Mark, said, let's just kill the video. Let's ju- just do a pure po- podcast. And that's what we did. And it's, uh, and here uh, we and are. That, and here we are. Well, congrats on it. All right. Well, thank you. Predictions. Shall we do that? or Real quick, Mike, before okay. we... I've got yeah. one more question. I think this one's really important. And it's something that happened on the show right at the top of the year before the pandemic hit. And we had two of the many people from the Chapo Trap House on the podcast. <laughs> and we got to address this because you... you yeah. Old boomer beltway politician types from DC got dragged through the mud. You got owned. You got destroyed. Yeah, we got owned by we the Chapo Trap House obliterated. folks. Obliterated. Yeah. And uh, and I really just want to have a bigger discussion once you paint the picture here of the Chapo Trap House guys and and that interaction. But this this sort of asks a bigger question about uh, generational politics, right? And you know, yeah. people from your position, and you've been doing it for a long time now, and these young upstarts who have huge massive influential followings that uh, feel like they own yeah. the place now. Right. Yeah, so of talk about well, that. I, yeah. It's very, well, I, yeah, I think I've discussed this. I discussed this at the time, but this began with, you know, a year ago for the Christmas holidays. Um, uh, uh, we're at my sister's house. She's got her young millennial kids there. My, and, and two of my nephews started talking about this, pod that they listened to religiously. They were big Bernie bros. My nephews were. And, um, you know, telling me this is what, you know, their crowd listens to all the time. I'd never heard of it. And I thought, you know, once again, I'd like to be cool. So let's uh, let's bring these guys on and, uh, you know, mix it up a little. And, um, you know, we had them we had them in there to the office. They were kind of well, like one guy was eating a banana the whole time. Yeah, that was Virgil Texas. He was eat, yeah, eating Virgil a banana. Texas, you know. And I you know, I thought the conversation was okay. It was interesting. We, you know, gave him a little hard time, but it was mostly a sort of, you know, dialogue. And then on Twitter, man, you know, know, people are tweeting at us about how we'd gotten owned by Chapo Trathouse and we were 
completely destroyed and, uh, you know, exposed as being the old fogies that we are. I expect all of my followers on Twitter to tweet about how you were owned by me today. So, <laughs> uh, so look, yes. if, you're, if you're listening this far into the show, um, right. I, I, I want... I want a pwned tweet uh, from you <laughs> okay. about right. Biden right. in particular. <laughs> Let's wrap it up with a, a prediction from everybody. Uh, ben, you go first. And what are the parameters? Can I predict anything about anything? A anything in 2021. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Who'll be I in the World Series? I continued controversy through the early period of the Biden administration. <laughs> Ooh, sticking <laughs> your neck out. Wow. Okay. You'll be, uh, you'll be exposed be as the fraud you are. <laughs> <laughs> when tranquility comes yes. to Washington in a few weeks, uh, Clydeman. Okay, so um, there has been a fair amount of debate about whether Joe Biden and his Justice Department ought to um, investigate Trump and members of his family and other uh, Trump cronies for corruption and other forms of maladministration. And I think, uh, you know, Biden has kind of dodged that. He said he I think he's essentially said he'll just let his Justice Department act independently. It's reminiscent of Obama uh, when he was asked to investigate torture back in uh, 2009. He said he wanted to look forward, not backwards. But I think Biden is going to come under enormous pressure to do something to hold Trump accountable over the last four years and have a kind of a cleansing of that period. And I think what he might do is follow the advice of uh, James Fallows, who has a new piece in the current uh, edition of the uh, of the Atlantic magazine. For reasons of accountability, he will establish a commission or maybe several commissions to look at in uh, Fallows idea was three separate areas, the COVID response, the separation of children from their parents at the border, the so-called caging of children. And the last one, maybe the most important one, is the sort of persistent and corrosive attacks on our democracy. So I think Biden's going to come up with sure. some kind of commission do to deal with that problem. That? Do you think he could do that without legislation? Sure. He could just I, I, do it sure. by executive you, order? You don't, a, you don't need to have a presidential commission. Without, I think you could do it without legislation. Would it have legislation. subpoena power? I don't think you would. Couldn't I don't give, think you couldn't give it subpoena power without. I don't you think couldn't you could give, give it, it subpoena power, yeah. which means yeah. it would be derided as a partisan exercise by the Republicans. Well, it depends on who you put on the committee. Yeah, let's assume yeah. for a minute you 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 could get it done, and you could get it done in the way that you would want to. So I've thought about this a lot, and I'm I, well, one of the problems is you know at the time of the nine eleven commission, you could say, oh well, we should get you know. Tom Keane and then Jim, Jim, you know, like Hamilton, Lee Hamilton, Lee Hamilton yeah. sorry. And, uh, you know, and they're sort of like a bipartisan duo who represents staid centrism of the type that bipartisan togetherness of the type that the Trap-Ass Gang owns. Who do you get to run this thing? Yeah, that is a very good question because, you know, you basically have, um, it's so binary in the Republican Party today, you either have never Trumpers who are on Trump. You know, they're the ones who have Trump derangement syndrome more than liberals do in some ways. And then you have the people who have embraced him. Uh, here's what I think. Here's a possibility that there will be some 
some uh, number, I don't know how significant, but some group of Republicans who have been with Trump all along, who once Trump is gone, will separate themselves from and Trump the and Trumpism. who's the leader of that caucus? I, 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 don't, I, I don't, we don't know yet. Uh, right. We don't know who that is yet, but I think there will be people like that, and I think those would be the best people to put on this commission on the conservative side. Okay, um, mine is we'll see a split decision in Georgia. The D's take one, the R's take the other, and I'm thinking Stepford wife Kelly Leffler prevails and beats Warnock purely because of the racial elements in Georgia that will be at play. And that as a result, Mitch McConnell will still be majority leader and uh, the Republicans will go after, I would think, three of the cabinet picks. Nira Tandon won't make it. And, um, you know, there may be uh, they, they'll go after two more and we'll have to see about AG. But that's that's going to be the politically most sensitive one. So there you have it. I can be disproven the most most quickly. Oh, no, Wittes can, because he said there'll be. All right. Now, we're, we're, in right. fact, peace yeah. is going to break out. It's going to yeah. start. Yeah. Next, you're going to see it coming <laughs> right. over the horizon. Okay. And, you're, and your first reaction, and your first reaction is going to be, Wittes was wrong, and we get to make fun of him on Skullduggery. <laughs> so, well, I thank God we we will, because otherwise, what the hell are we going to talk about in 2021 <laughs> on Skullduggery? Anyway, uh, thanks, uh, all our loyal listeners, for listening all year long. Uh, happy holidays, and we'll be back at you in January. <laughs>